this morning we pick up our study in the book of Revelation. And as we do, I cannot help but think about the topic of warnings and how in our lives, warnings are all around us. Everything from the little light in your dashboard to uh, little labels on cigarette packs to even warning labels on pillows that warn us not to take off the warning label. Warnings are everywhere. Signs that warn us of wet paint, dangerous surf, toxic chemicals, no parking zones. And warnings come in all shapes and sizes. The downward trends in our markets warn us of financial disaster. Our doctors tell us they warn us we're gaining too much weight or we have too much cholesterol. Soldiers fire warning shots. Nations warn of treaty violations. Weather apps warn of high temperature. Warnings, warnings, warnings. They're everywhere. We can't get away from them. And really, when you think about it, there's only two ways to respond to warnings, right? Either you listen to the warning or you ignore the warning. And uh, it'd be an interesting personality quiz to see which one are you, right? Are you, are you, do you actually tear the tag off that pillow or do you leave it on there? I don't know. Well, this morning in Revelation 8 through 11, there is a warning. God gives a warning to humanity, seven trumpets to warn the earth, to warn all of humanity. And there's only two options we have when that warning goes forth. We heard Kyle read to us that God has in the past used warning trumpets, so it shouldn't surprise us that he would do so again. If you haven't turned already, open up to Revelation chapter 8. Now, I won't read the entirety of this passage because we did that last week, but because it is a big topic, I do want to read a certain key text so you kind of get the flavor of what's going on. And so I will kind of jump around, not because those things aren't unimportant that I don't read, but I want to just give you a flavor of the flow of uh, Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. We'll pick it up at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Skip down to verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel, chapter 9, verse 1, blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone, and in those days people will seek death, and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Jump down to verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their numbers. And finally, verse 20. The rest of mankind 
who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or thefts. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's safe to say if you've ever been tempted to the thinking that the Bible was too touchy-feely, sentimental, or had a saccharine view of life, what we just read completely demolishes that view. In fact, what we just read from Revelation may be the exact opposite of what people think they're going to find in the Bible. After all, this doesn't sound like the, the hippie, happy Jesus who wants to soothe your self-esteem, does it? Not at all. In fact, this sounds like a king who's angered at the rebellion of people who have destroyed his kingdom, or at least tried to. This is, in fact, a warning to all that there is only one king, and he doesn't abide any usurpers to his throne, and there is a price to pay for persecuting his people. There is a price to pay for rebelling against his sovereignty. Now, before we unpack these seven trumpets, and that's basically the outline, that's what we're going to do this morning, uh, actually, in your bulletin, I put a little bit of an outline because there's so much we're trying to cover that I'm trying to give you some sense of where we're going. Chapter 8, we'll discuss the first four trumpets, and this is where we see the natural world turned upside down. In chapter 9, we'll discuss trumpets 5 and 6, and this is where we see the supernatural world turned loose. And then in chapter 11, verses 15 to 16, we'll discuss, uh, study the last trumpet, and this is where we see a renewed world. Now, before we jump into it, and there is a lot to cover, as you can imagine today, I just want to keep in mind one very important thing. It's very important, so much so that John even mentions it in chapter 9, verse 17, that what he's seeing is a vision of things. And that's really important to remember as we try to interpret the book of Revelation. Keep in mind, Revelation is apocalyptic. That's the genre. The Bible is actual literature, right? It is, it is, one sense, a very separate book from any other book in the world, but on the other hand, it is a book like every other book in that it's a piece of literature, many pieces of literature, and they abide by their rules. And so we don't read history like we read comics, right? You, you don't read the newspaper like you would read a, a love letter. We automatically shift gears to read the, the genre we're reading to understand what's going on. And so what we're reading here is apocalyptic. It's, it's symbolic. It's a vision. These, the overall impression of these kinds of literature, the overall impression is what's supposed to amaze us and wow us and take our breath away. We're supposed to be amazed at the picture that John is painting and not examine every individual brushstroke. We're to be blown away by the vision, not confused by the details. The tapestry that John weaves is the picture we're to look at, not the weavings of the individual threads. It's very important, or we're going to go in all kinds of crazy directions reading this book. The seven trumpets, I've been teaching you a, a kind of way of reading Revelation that's not so much linear that just one goes all the way to 22, but what I've called recursive, and that's pretty typical of, of ancient oriental literature where they, they kind of revisit the same thing over and over again as they're kind of going along, but from different perspectives and different angles. The seven trumpets that we're looking at in chapters 8 through 11 is looking at the same period of time. It's expanding upon and expounding upon the same events that we saw covered in the seven seals from chapter 6, going all the way up to chapter 8, verse 5, but with a 
bit of a different emphasis. So as we're reading this, and as I've just read it, the images and scenes you see talked about here are not to make you hope that you know, if you're lucky enough and if you're at the right time in the right place, you could get your iPhone and videotape these locusts and, and then kind of put that up on TikTok and be an internet sensation. That, that's not what's happening here. Although this is real, because it is real, it is not necessarily literal because these are symbolic. Just to give you a sense what John is doing, he, he's, he's pulling from tried and true images and events from the history of Israel to cast for the readers what God is doing now and in the future. So for example, the plagues that we read about that, that we're seeing here in these seven trumpets, the, the devastation, they're very reminiscent and they should remind you of the very plagues in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7 through 11. The scattering of coals and judgment that we'll read about in a little bit are basically pulled from Ezekiel chapter 10. The blowing of the trumpets of warning are pulled from Joshua chapter 6 that Kyle just read from us, and Ezekiel 33, the job of the watchman blowing the trumpets. And the locust horde that we see here so vividly in chapter 9, that's just reminiscent of Joel chapter 1 and 2 in the book of Amos. So what John is doing is pulling from their corporate memory to tell them and remind them what's going on now and what's to come. Not just in some future time, not just in some period just for John's writing, but for all Christians in all places, in all times, throughout reality, in a sense, Revelation is a wake-up call. It is a reminder to the great spiritual reality and the war we're all a part of. If I can put it this way, Revelation is the red pill of reality, Neo. You want to find out what's really going on? Then read this book, and it'll tell you. But be prepared, because it's not what you anticipate. So let's take a look at chapter 8, the, the remainder of chapter 8, and trumpets 1 through 4, and how we'll see just the natural world is turned upside down. Uh, before I do, though, I just want to make two points, because we can easily forget this. We, we took a 10-week break from Revelation, so you may forget where this is taking place. Recall, John is, in the, the, is getting a vision of being in the very throne room of God. Remember that. He is at the... the power center of the universe and he receives a scroll coming from God and he begins to weep because the scroll means that what's written upon it is God's plan his, his plan of redemption for creation and reality and what God intends to do and John weeps bitterly because nobody in heaven on earth or under the earth is worthy enough to open the scroll and what John says is that means that God's plans will not come to pass and all this is for nothing and John breaks down you remember that Except there is one person, there is somebody who's worthy, the lion who is the lamb. He's worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, and as he does so, the seals get broken, and John sees other visions. Now the scroll is winding open, all the seals are broken, and we have the trumpets. So the first thing we need to remember is this, two points I want to make that I want you to hear, that as we're jumping into all this kind of fantastical visions and imagery is this, God and hears and answers the prayers of his people. All that we are experiencing from here on out in Revelation is in response to God reacting to the prayers of his people. So I want you to go to uh, Revelation chapter 6. Back up a little bit here. Revelation chapter 6. So when the fifth seal is open, what is the vision that John sees? He sees the souls of Christians under the altar and they're crying out to God in verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We see the same kind of thing happening. That was in the seven seals. Now in the seven trumpets, look at chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden, ins uh, golden censer. Uh, for those of you who didn't grow up in a Catholic church or something like an Anglican church, uh, if you've ever seen like priests kind of walk down the aisle and they've got this chain, there's like a plate and they're swinging it and smoke's coming up, that's the censer and that's incense burning on it. Very common in antiquity. And he, this angel, was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints that are on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so what you're seeing is as the saints, this is very symbolic language, the saints are praying, and metaphorically, in this vision, those prayers themselves are like the, the, the incense that are being mixed together, and they're going up before God. God hears the prayers of his people. Now, we're talking cosmic scale here, but by way of application, God hears your prayers, and he responds. Now, it's different from the way we're going to see him respond here, but I don't want you to miss that point, that what we're seeing at a macro level is also true at a micro level in many ways. So God hears his prayer, the prayers of his saints, and the second thing is God responds, and he responds in judgment against those who persecute and oppress his people. Now for us in America, in free states like this, that doesn't maybe not bring much comfort, but I just met a brother from Zambia where, boy, they take comfort from that. I know brothers in persecuted parts of our country and in our world, in Africa and China, and they take refuge that God responds in judgment to those who persecute them. Here we see it here. Verse uh, 3 or 4 and 5. So verse 4. So the, the prayers of the saints mingled in with the incense. And look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. So you can see this all mixing together, the prayers of the saints. And he puts it in the center, censer and he throws it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So we're seeing a very visionary, amazing, fantastical reality that the prayers of the saints of those who are suffering for the gospel ask God, why do we live in a broken world with all this injustice? When are you going to act on our behalf? And God says, I hear and I answer. And he takes those prayers and it mixes them up with the incense and the coal and he scatters it upon the earth in judgment. That, that's kind of the visionary picture we're seeing here. Let me read language that might be more familiar to you from 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. Paul writes this, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so in chapter 8, so Paul's talking about 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, more concretely what we're seeing here in Revelation 8, these trumpets of warning that God's judgments is coming. Notice here that the theme, too, of the exodus that was introduced to us in chapter 5. You remember, remember that, right? If you not, go back to chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, that's taken directly from the exodus, the sacrificial lamb. That whole uh, sacrificial system began during the exodus because the lamb of the blood was shed and therefore the death angel would pass over anyone who claimed the blood of the lamb for themselves. And so we see the theme of Exodus coming in here to Revelation, and that's really appropriate. And why is that? It's because we have the same kind of thing happening. 
in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when God's people were oppressed and suffering, crying out for deliverance, and God hears and delivers. Very fitting analogy to what's happening throughout the entirety of the church age. God hears and he delivers and he judges those who come against his people and persecutes them. Let's look at the trumpets themselves. So with the first trumpet there in chapter eight, verse seven, results in a third of the earth being burned up. I, ho I hope that is reminiscent in your mind. Some of you Bible scholars, you might be thinking of Exodus chapter nine, the seventh plague where fire and hail are cast down to the earth and on, on Egypt and Egypt begins to burn. Now we see the second trumpet and the third, they're kind of they're clumped together. They result in a third of the sea turning into, a blood, into blood and a third of the sea creatures unable to live in it. And I should recall to you the very first plague in Exodus chapter seven, when the Nile River was turned into blood and all the animals died in the river. The fourth trumpet we see here results in a third of the heavenly host, the sun, the moon, the stars, all failing. And I hope that reminds you of the ninth plague in Exodus chapter 10, where there was darkness over the land of Egypt so thick that day became pitch as night. So these four trumpets, what's the picture John's painting for us? When you think about it, he, he's painting that the entire natural world is turned upside down. Land, sea, rivers, waters, sun, sky, moon, stars, everything is turned upside down and it's out of control. Well, now that's a real vivid picture, but what I want you to do is, I, I kind of want to maybe let these visions and symbols hit us a little bit closer to home. I, I want us to, to leave the world of maybe kind of the fantasy world of speculation that this is all going to happen literally in the future and maybe move to the real world of application and kind of think about what we're seeing here in this vision. Not diving into the details, but letting the overall picture hit us. And if you stop and think, this isn't much different than the news headlines you and I read every day, right? It's not given, it's not talking about angels blowing trumpets and this happening. But for example, in the last month, these are just some of the headlines in the news. All of Europe and Asia experiencing what they've been calling thousand year floods. Have you been seeing that? A thousand year flood is a flood so catastrophic it only happens one every thousand years. Recently, we had the heat domes afflicting the Pacific Northwest and all of Canada. Firestorms consuming millions of acres around the world. Australia's fires were so bad that the smoke from it encircled the entire globe. This past week, Lori showed me an article about new discovered dead zones in the ocean, an area so low on oxygen that no sea, sea creature can live in that area. Guys, that's, I know, I, I'm not going to try and get into the pol politics of climate change here, right? I'm not going to tell you bioelectric cars or anything. But, but the Bible seems to be describing not climate change, more like a climate cage match here. The creation is fighting us. It seems as if creation is angry with us. And we'll see soon it is, actually, and for good reason. Now, Let's be good Bible interpreters. John's our original audience. They weren't thinking climate change. They don't know anything about heat domes. None of that was on their radar. But maybe they were thinking about Pompeii and Herculaneum that was just literally wiped off the map 20 years earlier when Mount Vesuvius exploded. You know that story, AD 79. About 20 years before this book was written, Mount Vesuvius throws molten ash and lava and rock 20 miles into the atmosphere, covering most of Europe and much of the Mediterranean in darkness and a shroud of ash. And, and just can you imagine what it must have looked like? 
cataclysmic. Now, if I was alive reading John's letter of Revelation around this time, I would have said, that's it, end of the world, here it is, there's the evidence. But it didn't end. Actually, some people believe that that was God's judgment against Rome for destroying Jerusalem in AD 70, just nine years earlier from Mount Vesuvius erupting. The point is, friends, in every generation and time, God's warning humanity, this world is broken. It's broken by us. Don't, let's be clear on us. It's not broken necessarily by our carbon emissions and any of that kind of thing. It's broken because of our sin against God, which broke the fabric of reality, and it's falling apart. To notice the ramping up of intensity, did you notice back in our chapter, um, the repetition of third each time? A third of the earth, a third of the waters, a third of the living creatures, a third of the stars, a third of the sun, all these things. What's going on there? John, through the revelation Jesus gives them, is showing that the warning is increasing in intensity. During the seven seals, if you want to write that down, look at chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. It says this, it's speaking of the seals, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with the famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When we come to the seven trumpets, now it's a third. It's ramping up. God is saying, listen, I'm getting more intense here. But this isn't the final judgment, right? But this is God's real anger against the wickedness of this world. Think of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness. Did you catch that? Present tense of the verb, the wrath of God is revealed, not will be revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, for the creation itself was subjugated to futility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it. Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. That's why creation's mad at us. We did break it. But friends, it gets even worse. It's not simply the natural world that, uh, that Revelation 8 is telling us that's turned upside down as a result of, of humanity's sin and God's judgment against that sin. Trumpets 5 and 6 reveal that humanity will also endure the supernatural world turned loose on us. So let's look at Revelation 9. I want you to look over at Revelation 9. And what you're going to see in this chapter are two frightening hordes. In verses 1 through 12, a horde of locusts. And in verses 13 through 19, an unstoppable conquering horde. Now, the reason I call this the supernatural world turned loose is because these two trumpets have something about them that the other four lack, and that is an angelic being uh, initiating the, the, the action of the trumpet. In other words, in the fifth trumpet is blown, an angelic being is given the key to the bottomless pit, and then when the sixth trumpet is blown, an angelic being is given the command to release the conquering horde. Now, the fifth trumpet here in verses uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 9 brings something that seems really bizarre, really fantastical, almost Lord of the Rings-ish in these locusts, especially if you read their appearance. They're in 7 through 11. It feels like something right out of Tolkien's works. But, you know, this is actually something we've seen before. 
if you've been an, an avid Bible reader, uh, not only is this an, another allusion to the plagues against Egypt, plague number eight, you remember that in Exodus chapter 10, where the Lord sends a horde of locusts to decimate Egypt, the prophet Joel reminds us, or Joel reminds us how to interpret what we're seeing here in Revelation 9. See, locust hordes, while we don't know, have experience with those here, were a very common metaphor for most of the cultures of antiquity. In all their literature, uh, whether it's Assyrian, Egyptian, Sumerian, or Ugaritic, um, we find in the literature the metaphor of human armies and strength as a, a horde of locusts, an unstoppable horde of locusts. Joel makes it clear that the locust horde in the day of the Lord, actually, he actually says that in the day of the Lord, he talks about the locust horde, and he says this is a judgment sent by God, controlled by God, against those who would rebel against him. Now, if you've been at Christ Community Church long enough, we did that series, The Book of the Twelve, um, on June, June 9th, 2019, this is on our website, we did a whole hour sermon on Joel talking about the day of the Lord and this locust horde. I encourage you, if you want to know more about it, go listen again to that sermon. So again, we don't need CNN, we don't need Fox News, we don't need Stephen King or Tolkien to interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets itself. Now, there is one detail that Revelation 9 gives us that we don't find anywhere else. And that's in verse 11, the name of the king of this horde. There it is. They have, this, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. Apollyon is a derivative of the god Apollo. If you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, you know the god Apollo is a son of Zeus. And so Apollyon is a derivative of Apollo. What's going on here is there's a belief among scholars that John is making a veiled accusation against Rome right now. And the reason being is Emperor Domitian, uh, who is the emperor uh, of the Roman Empire during this time, took the mantle of, of the god Apollo for himself. What I, what I mean by that is most of the Caesars believed they were incarnate, or incarnations of the gods. And Domitian believed he was the incarnation of the god Apollo. And by the way, one of the many symbols of Apollo, Apollo is a complex god, but one of his ma many symbols was the locust specifically the, the cicada, but of the locust family. And so scholars believe what John is pointing to here is a veiled accusation about who this locust horde is. The king of the locust horde is the emperor of Rome himself. What is John's point? Why all this complex imagery? Well, I think it's trying to communicate on a number of levels, but I think one of the things John is trying to communicate in the fact that this is a supernatural event and yet associate that with Rome is that sometimes demons and supernatural opposition, they're not always little red devils with pitchforks. Sometimes they look like corrupt politicians or dictators or overlords or governments. In our time and place, we might say corrupt businesses that put profits over people. The lust of greed of man that just consumes and devours and is never satisfied. Sometimes the supernatural looks very natural to us. And so John is trying to give us a picture of that. And so here, the very people who sided with the world system, being Rome, instead of siding with the people of God, are now tormented by the very same system they swore allegiance to. One of the things that the Christians were persecuted for was refusing to call Caesar their God and bowing the knee. And so all the rest of the citizens would bow the knee acknowledging Caesar as God as their security, as their hope, as their savior, so to speak. 
And here their savior is betraying them, tormenting them. The five months, I'm not sure why that's there, other than the fact that the average lifespan of a desert locust is between three and six months. Maybe they're splitting the difference, I'm not sure. But one belief is that this could be very, the reality is that this is a theme all through the scriptures that whatever we put our trust in above the Lord, that thing will betray us. And we see that here as a veiled allusion to it being Rome and Domitian, betraying and tormenting the very people who called him God. So as 21st century Christians, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we tempted to put above God? Money, love, power, sexual experiences, right? My ethnicity, my national identity, my image, my health, people's approval, my political party, my rights. Any of those things that we functionally say, that's my security, that's what I need, my life will be better if I just have that. Again, the theme comes to us from scripture, it will only betray you in the end. What about the sixth trumpet? What about that sixth trumpet? I believe the sixth trumpet here we have in verse 13 and 19 is just an amplification of the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet shows that humanity is just tormented by the things that they look to for hope but don't get. They get a bitter sting in response. You see that in verse 6, right? In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. They can never get the thing they want. They've been betrayed by this. But notice the sixth trumpet, it's all about death. Again, the judgment intensity increasing. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And so again, an increasing amplification of the judgment. Trumpet 5 establishes the fact that your idols will betray you. Your allegiances to anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the end will betray you. Even if it seems strong and intimidating and powerful like these locusts, they will turn on you. That's what trumpet five establishes and trumpet six establishes the reality that our idolatry in general leads to just chaos and death like a locust horde that is never satisfied. Our lusts are consuming and it destroys. What's the, what's the overall picture? Remember we talked about the overall picture. As we look at chapters eight and nine, let's not look at the details, but what's the overall impression? The overall impression is Dang, we are messed up. We are in a hot mess. The, the natural world is upside down. The supernatural world is turned loose. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, natural or supernatural, natural disasters, human sin, wars that kill millions, accidents that kill on a daily basis, whatever it might be, we are struggling. Whether it's disease like COVID-19, whether it's terrorist attacks and tragedies like 9-11 or condominiums that collapse on themselves, we are in a broken world and there's judgment upon us. Now, let me just be real clear. I'm not saying that the people who died in 9-11 were any more guilty than you or I. Okay, let me be clear. And I'm not saying that the people who died in the Surfside condo collapse were any more guilty than you or I. As a matter of fact, let's read Jesus. Jesus says something about this exactly. Jesus, uh, let's go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 4. Listen to what Jesus says about these kind of apparently haphazard events. Luke chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus says this. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? So apparently there was a, a tower construction in Siloam and it fell over and killed 18 individuals. 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you they weren't. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The point I'm making at here is that we live in a fundamentally broken world. And if it's not 9-11 or COVID or World War II or a heart disease or a coronary or a car accident or a birth defect, our end is coming and it's just a matter of time. Are we going to double down? Are we going to heed the warning? Are we going to listen to the warning? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to repent and bow the knee to the true Savior? Or are we going to double down in our arrogance and keep bowing the knees to our man-made saviors? That's the principle. That's the point. I think that's what we're getting away with. And I think that's true because look at verse 20 and 21 in chapter 9. Notice what, 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 what John's repeating. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God is just bringing constant judgment for people who have rebelled against him, who have broken his world, and that humanity refuses to repent. Friends, think of the picture. I mean, how, how stubborn can we be in a world where there's constant catastrophe, political corruption, dictators, overlords, evil regimes, injustice, social unrest? You think people would yearn and cry out for mercy. But we don't. We double down and get angry at God and blame God for all that is going on in the world when it was our hand that caused it and started and it's our hand that keeps pushing it. Friends, just watch the news. It just astounds me. On, on the very same news hour, you can hear us talking about the human potential and our progress and our enlightenment and in the same moment, give stories reporting of our depravity, our vanity, and our selfishness completely unaware of this glaring contradiction. It's like part of God's judgment is we're completely blind to our own problem. You would think we'd look around and say, man, there's something seriously wrong with this world, and we can't fix it. But like Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus, when God does all these amazing displays of his power and judgment, still giving Egyptian and Pharaoh the time to repent, he hardens his heart and doubles down. How scary is the rebellion of the human heart? Friends, I, I don't know you guys. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I know some of you, but how scary is the rebellion in your heart? How scary that Pharaoh would see, would rather see the great empire of Egypt burned to the ground rather than humble himself before the Lord. That humanity, we would see wars and injustice and poverty and destitution and all these things rather than humble ourselves before the Lord. How about you? What is it going to take before you humble yourself from the Lord, before the Lord? What's it going to take? Will, will it take the, the, the thundering of this half-Japanese preacher to, to make you wake up? Will it take a brother and sister in Christ who says, what are you doing? Will it be your husband or wife? Will it be a friend 
What will it take before you realize I am destroying my life and the lives around me through my sin and I'm cursing God for my sin rather than taking his gift of repentance and salvation? See, friends, what we're reading here, obviously, it, it is talking about uh, of human destiny in, 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 the, in its cosmic and general sense, but that destiny is played out in your every decisions for or against the Lord right now. Right? This, what we're reading here is the sum of all the parts of our lives. Well, we got we to gotta wrap up here. Um, let's get to Trumpet 7. We're going to skip chapter 10 and 11 because we're actually going to touch on that next week. I want to conclude by looking at trumpet, uh, the seventh trumpet, uh, chapter 11, verse 15. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, man, enough already with the doom and gloom. I can't take any more of this. But that's not what we read. Look at it. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Wait a minute. I thought this was a trumpet of woe. No, this is a trumpet of wonder. In, in one sense, it is a trumpet of woe. The greatest woe can be for those who rebel against God is to see his Lord seated on the throne of creation. So in some sense, it is the greatest woe, but it's a great wonder. What are we seeing here? We are seeing the, the Revelation does this all the time. It, it telescopes all of redemptive history from Christ's first coming all the way through to his second coming. And sometimes it does that in even one chapter, but that's what Revelation is doing. And it's kind of showing us here, we have come to the second coming of Christ. Right? It's not going into all the glorious details that chapters 19, 20, 21 will give us, but that's what we're seeing here. Look at it. Verse 18 says, the nations raged against God, but his wrath came and the time to judge the dead and the time to reward the faithful and the time to destroy those who destroyed the earth. And it closes with a symbol, a picture of the ark coming down, which is a symbol, has always been a symbol of God's presence, his promises and his protection. So what are we seeing here with the seventh trumpet as we begin to wrap up? Now, remember my first two points. God hears and God delivers. This is why these chapters make so much of the Exodus motif, because that's exactly what happened. His people were persecuted and oppressed and afflicted, and they cried out for God's mercy, and he delivered them. And he delivered them, and the way he delivered them also judged the nation that came against them in power and might. And Revelation communicates the same thing. In this great spiritual war, the reality we are all part of, God's people will indeed be oppressed and afflicted. But God will hear. God will deliver. God will judge and God will vindicate. And I was just talking after first hour with a young man. It's hard for us. I mean, does this look like a great war? Do we feel we're afflicted and oppressed? No. We are blessed. But friends, if you are a Christian in the free world, the West, and in, 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 in America, we have a, a responsibility to steward our freedoms well because the majority of our Christians know this. The majority of our brothers and sisters know this. A brother from Zambia, my friends in Nairobi, brothers and sisters in China, throughout the world, just go on the, the Joshua, is it the Joshua Project or Operation World? The, most of the church suffers persecution regularly. Christianity is the most persecuted belief system on the planet. You don't hear that in our regular news media, but that is the reality. And we are blessed. Friends, this is, in short, the message of the gospel. 
Will you see the destruction of sin that it's making in your life? And will you respond to the mercy of God or will you double down and curse him all the more? That was the pattern in Exodus. This has been the pattern of humanity since, since the coming of Christ to his second coming. That's what it will be. But we are told here there's still time. This is not the final judgment. There is still time, friends. Today is the day of salvation. Whether to turn from your sin for the first time or maybe the thousandth time, you can do it because God's generous and God is gracious. But the warnings are ramping up. The warnings are ramping up because the time is wrapping up. There is still time, but that time is running out. But there is time now to live for what matters, to live and give the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to live for what matters, to make a difference even now while the trumpets blast. And that actually is exactly the message of chapters 10 through 11. We'll look at that next week. So I encourage all of you to be here because it's going to answer the question, well, while all these trumpets are blaring and all this judgment is coming, what are God's people supposed to be doing? That's what 10 and 11 are about. So I hope you come back for that. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. I mean, it's just like we just scratched it and there's so much more there. But Lord, that's enough for now. Well, I pray that we would learn the, the, the principal lesson that this world, it's out of control, out of our control, but it's not out of your control. You sit enthroned. As a matter of fact, all of these trumpets and seals and bowls of wrath and all that we're hearing and reading about, they're fulfilling your purposes because you're bringing it all to an, a glorious end. You cannot abide what sin has done. Destroyed your world, destroyed us, your creation. Father, all the injustice, all the cruelty, all, all the things that go on in this world anger your heart, and you will not abide it, and you do something about it, and you do that through your people. Help wake us up, empower us, embolden us for the, your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.